Thank you, Luke. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 7, in verses 1 to 6 this morning. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. As Luke mentioned, while you're turning there, uh, we don't have children's church this morning. Parents, if this is your first time to have your kids in the service with you, uh, it's going to be okay. We're all right. We're all in this together, okay? So with the grace of God, we'll endure, all right? You can, you can make it. We understand that there's going to be a little bit more commotion in here and things like that because there are kids in the service. That's okay. Um, just, just relax. Everything's going to come out all right. Um, the older I get, the, the more I've begun to notice that I don't actually look like what I feel like I look like or what I think I look like. In my head, I'm still 22, and I look like a 22-year-old, and I have the body of a 22-year-old, and I have the energy of a 22-year-old, and then I look in the mirror, and it's not a 22-year-old that's staring back at me. This is especially bad when I see pictures of myself. Uh, Andrea and I have, have kind of been recently, we've tried to be, cur- you know, cur- curtail how much we consume at the dinner table. We just... I've noticed that one of the hardest things as a pastor is to refrain from all the sweets and goodies and things like that that are, that are brought in because uh, people bring in like banana bread and I could, we'd have to put some support underneath the stage eventually, right? And so we kind of are trying to curtail a little bit about, uh, of what we eat and just have a little bit more discipline. And so when you start to lose weight, you kind of take a look at yourself in the mirror. You know, you like you start to feel a little bit better, and then you kind of go to the mirror and you try to see: is there a noticeable difference? You know, in how I'm actually I'm actually looking. And then once you kind of you get that feeling, you're like, yeah, there's a little bit of a difference. I'm starting to lose a little bit of weight. That's really good. And then uh, and then all of a sudden, somebody snaps an iPhone picture of you from an unflattering angle and posts it on Facebook, and it looks like you had just eaten a gallon of Bluebell ice cream, and. <laughs> And you think, I've got more work to do. Uh, it also happens to me when I see a picture of the top of my head. I don't have a mirror that looks at the top of my head. And so when I look at me from straight on, I think, you know, I'm not going that bald, right? I'm thinning, okay, yes, but I'm not that bald. And then I see a picture of the top of my head and I think, who's that bald guy in the picture? Oh, goodness. This also works, too, with our our character. The image that we see of ourselves in the mirror is not always what we think it should look like. It's supposed to look like. Now, that may come as really bad news for you if you're not impressed by what you see in the mirror. It's worse in real life. You may or may not have this problem with your looks, but for all of us, this is an issue with our character. In the mirror to my character, I'll notice some of my flaws. I'll notice some of them, but all of them appear tiny and insignificant in comparison to what I think I really am. And if I inspect your character, on the other hand, if I were to look in your mirror, well, I'd be able to point out all of them. I'd be able to see every single one of them. And not only would they be apparent, But most of them would be inexcusable and intolerable. I wouldn't be able to live with them. Mine, on the other hand, I'm willing to 
just gloss over and excuse and explain away. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to warn us about the dangers of judgmentalism. And in light of what he's told us in the last two chapters, in chapters 5 and 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, he's told us about living righteously in God's kingdom. And he's now going to shift a little bit and warn us about how we look at others, both inside and outside of the kingdom. So with that in mind, let's look in our Bibles at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. On February 25th, we began the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, February 25th. And I know what you're thinking. Jesus is a long-winded preacher. I know. I get it. But if I can, if I can be just transparent with you for, for just a moment, my time studying the Sermon on the Mount has been personally, for me, the most transformative eight months or so of my entire life. There was... Hardly a week that went by, or there has been hardly a week that went by, that I didn't struggle in exactly the way that the text was speaking. And it was as if God was using my own life to illustrate to me my own need of being preached to. That you're not exempt from this, he would say to me. It's what I love about preaching and teaching is that I hope for you that it's convicting, that it's encouraging, that it's challenging. I hope that there's some, uh, even some difficulty in working through it. I hope that, that, that it's that for you. But I get so much out of the preparation. I enjoy so much that time of studying the Word and really digging deep down into the meaning of the text and seeing that the Holy Spirit is doing that in my own life. The difficulty in preaching on Sunday is, one, feeling like a hypocrite when you stand up here and deliver. That's, that's one. And then the other is hoping to give you the best snippets of things that I'm discovering in the text itself. Now, with that being said, we're entering into... The last chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. And, and an, so in another six months, we'll be done, and we can go, go on, right? Um, but there are distinct things that Jesus is pointing out in each of the chapters, in chapters 5, chapter 6, and now moving on into chapter 7. Remember, on the whole, Matthew is using Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount to introduce us to the kingdom of heaven. 
and what the kingdom of heaven is and what it's like. He's already introduced us to the king, Jesus. He did that in the first three and a half chapters. He told us about this king, Jesus, who was born of the line of David. And now he's using Jesus' sermon to introduce us to what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so in chapter 5, when we get to chapter 5, he starts off with the Beatitudes, where he gives us a character profile of a citizen of this kingdom. This is what a citizen of the kingdom really looks like. And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 5 to define how that citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to live. What is their moral code? So here's the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Here's what his character looks like. And here's the moral code by which he lives. That's the vast majority of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he builds on that to ask us the question, what motivates the heart of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What motivates his heart toward righteousness? Does he do righteous works because it's politically expedient for him? Does he do righteous works so that people at work around him will think that he's really a pretty big deal and they'll go, wow, that's really good. I'm glad to really get to know him because future of his career will be benefited by his moral code? No, that's absolutely what, the opposite of what we find out. We discover the, the answer is that the kingdom citizen does works of righteousness simply because it pleases the king. That he lives to serve the king, whether or not anybody is ever looking at him. That's the, what motivates his heart toward righteousness. So we learn then that we have to be careful about the motivations in our own heart of pleasing God. That we do so to please the king, not because it helps us in life, but because of the king that we serve. Our hearts then are set on what? Are set on the treasures of the kingdom of heaven rather than the treasures that can be found here on earth. That's how chapter 6 concludes. Now in this last chapter, Jesus is going to close out the sermon with a series of alternatives to being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're going to see two characters constantly throughout this chapter. The series of just alternative different lifestyles that you can have. Not everyone is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, in other words. And so he's going to lay out two distinct paths by the end of the chapter. Two paths that you can walk down. Now the first part of the chapter, which we're in now, he's going to lay out a series of three warnings, three dangers two of which we're going to talk about this morning. So in our text, we're going to see two dangers that Jesus gives to us, both of which are framed in the negative. Don't do this. First, he warns us by saying that others' weaknesses should always be assessed in light of our own. Others' weaknesses should always be assessed in light of our own. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, "...judge not that you be not judged." There are a handful of verses in the Bible that, for one reason or another, are widely known in our culture. Now, in the past, John 3.16 was always one of those that was known. Most people even knew the verse reference, even if they couldn't cite the actual verse itself. They would know John 3.16 was a really important verse for Christians. 
Now, as the culture kind of dives further into spiritual darkness, I would say that John 3.16 might be less known than usual. In fact, there would be hardly a verse that I could confidently say our culture widely knows, except for Matthew 7.1. I think for whatever reason, Matthew 7.1 has held on in the consciousness of our culture. In fact, I don't even know, I doubt, the verse could even be cited, or that most people even are aware that it comes from the Bible. But they probably would say something like, doesn't it say in the Bible you shouldn't judge me, right? And this is what they would be referring to. Judge not has become the refrain of many in our culture today. And they use it to convince others that Jesus is totally cool with however you want to live. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He's saying, listen, guys, everybody just needs to relax with the whole righteousness talk. We just really need to, I don't know, live and let live. Isn't this what Jesus is advocating for? A live and let live kind of lifestyle? Isn't that how he's approaching this whole topic? So the point is, for us, it's incumbent to understand what Jesus is actually saying in this passage, what he actually means in this passage. He makes the statement, judge not that you be not judged. And here he surely doesn't mean that you, can, you can't evaluate sinful behavior of another individual. Surely that's not what he means. Because just five verses from now, He's going to tell us, he's going to refer to a group of people as dogs and pigs. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with the analogy, but it's never a good thing to be called a dog or a pig by a Jew. It's certainly never good to be called a dog or a pig by Jesus. So he's not using dog or pig to illustrate the most upstanding people in society. All right? That's not what he's, he's illustrating. I think, we, I think we all know that. I think it's fairly obvious. But further, in order for the disciple to actually use what he's saying and actually interpret it correctly and apply it to a situation in which we live, there's going to have to be some form of discernment and understanding, and you might say judgment, in order to understand and apply what he's actually telling us to do. Jesus will later tell us in Matthew 18 that the church has the authority to remove someone from membership over unrepentant sin. He says, let him be to you as a, as a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, it doesn't sound as though Jesus is advocating this sort of live and let live kind of lifestyle. Listen, church, you just need to relax on the whole thing. It doesn't sound as though he's doing that, but he's very intent on correcting sin in sheep, using other sheep to do that. Further, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, you remember 1 Corinthians where he's, he's calling out this brother who is, is, is doing some really bad things in the church at Corinth, and he calls him out, and he says, uh, he says to the church, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not 
those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul seems pretty keen on judging the people that are of the household of faith in accordance with their works. But the biggest reason why we know that Jesus isn't advocating just a live and let live kind of lifestyle is because Jesus is going to go on to tell us in the next few verses how to go about removing sin from our life and from the life of our brother or sister. So, as the kind of, as you study the Bible, if it doesn't pass mustard, if your interpretation doesn't pass mustard with the verses that are immediately around it, it's probably not the right interpretation, right? So there are, these examples that I give to you are just a few in the Bible that we could cite over how we actually deal with sin in our life and the life of the people around us and how we purge it from among us. It portrays anything but a live and let live kind of of approach to other people's sins. Well, if that's not what he's saying, what does it mean then to judge not that you be not judged? Now, Jesus, it seems uh, what Jesus condemns here is a censorious kind of attitude. That is, censorious attitude is an attitude that's severely critical of other people. An attitude that is severely critical of other people. On the one hand, it's not as though the culture is entirely wrong when they say, hey, doesn't the Bible say, don't judge me? Why are you judging me? The word that Jesus uses here for judgment, it can mean everything from pronouncing a verdict on somebody to simply being hypercritical towards a person. And I think what Jesus is illustrating here is that critical spirit that we apply to everyone else's misgivings but our own. What I want you to see here is the stakes. The stakes that Jesus puts on that kind of hypercritical attitude. Look at what he says in verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in other words, the criteria, or as he says, the measure that you use towards someone else is going to be measured to you. Now on the surface, we could think about that one of two ways. The the measure that you use, the standard of criticism that you apply to someone else is going to be used back on you. We could think of that one of two ways. One way would be just a simple sowing what you reap. If you're a hypercritical person, then other people are going to be hypercritical toward you, right? Surely you know people like this. Maybe you are that person. If you don't know anybody, you probably are that person. Um, But uh, you probably know people like this that are hypercritical. And what happens then? They invite criticism back on them because people that they're critical towards would like nothing better than to apply that same standard of criticism back to them, right? So it could be just a natural consequence. Hey, Jesus might be saying, look, if you're a critical person, you're going you're gonna to get some criticism. But I fear that's not what Jesus means. I think what he's saying is more than that. I think... The judgment that he's talking about here is judgment by God. You see what Jesus is saying? This is a, this is a warning to anyone with a hypercritical eye towards somebody else. 
And verse 2 is supposed to be that strong word of warning to you. If you are this kind of person, you need to be warned. So Jesus is essentially saying, by what measuring stick would you like God to judge you on judgment day? It's a question for your own analysis. By what measuring stick would you like God to judge you on judgment day? Would you like him to stick to the merely observable characteristics? Would you like him to exclude the Spirit's work in your heart? Oh, that doesn't count. That's, that's the Spirit stuff. Let's talk about you. Would you like him to overly scrutinize every decision you make? Would you, or would you rather his mercy and his grace through the death of Jesus cover over your sin? I'll take that. Then judge not that you be not judged. Brothers and sisters, this extends to everything from marriage, to our friendships, to our life together as members of the same church. Jesus is urging us to give everyone a really long leash. And this isn't easy because I can whip up some righteous indignation in a hurry. I can whip it up really fast. And with the same speed, I can gloss over all of my sins. I can explain them away. I can tell you exactly why I did them. I can tell you why it made sense at the time. I can maybe admit, okay, yeah, it was, it was probably pretty wrong. But it wasn't that bad. But I can whip up some righteous indignation over somebody else in a hurry. Jesus is giving us a word of warning. A warning that is actually repeated throughout the New Testament. Love others as Christ loved us. Now that part changes things a whole lot because if he just said love others, well, we might be able to argue about what that is. But when he adds that little last phrase, love others the way Christ loved you, that changes everything. Now, we can say that we love our brother or our sister, but do we love them the way Christ loved us? Do you give others the same leash that Christ gave to you? Do you give others the same amount of grace that Christ gave to you? See, we actually need to be reminded of the gospel message every single day. We need to preach it to ourselves. You need to hear it preached from the pulpit. When I repeat the gospel message week in and week out, it can be a temptation to check out and to think, I actually already believe the gospel. That's why I'm here worshiping the Lord. This is for all the people in the room that are lost, that need to hear the gospel, and maybe they'll come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But believe it or not, I need to be reminded of the gospel message every single day. The reason is because it tells me every 
everything about who I am and what way I am to live. For instance, it tells me how long the leash is that Christ gave to me. As you well know, we were created by a holy God and we were created for the purpose of worshiping Him. But did we turn and worship Him like He rightfully deserved? No. We spurned that. Instead, we spit on His face and we turned away from Him with our sin. And because we turned away from Him with our sin, we rightfully deserve an eternity in hell. That judgment that He would have been so right to give to us, He stayed. He paused. And instead, He sent His Son, knowing that we could never be holy, sent His Son who was perfect, God in the flesh, truly God, truly man, coming to the cross having earned a lifetime of of good works, of righteous works, having earned the rewards of that, did He take those? No, He did not. Instead, He climbed up on the cross and took the full force of God's wrath on my behalf. God poured His wrath out on Jesus instead of me. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So then the question you ask after hearing the gospel message, how long of a leash did he give you? How much grace did he give you? You were worthy of an eternity in hell. It's a long time. Listen to me. Our tolerance for the mistakes or the sins of others is directly related to how the truth of the gospel has permeated our heart. Our tolerance of the mistakes of others is directly related to how deeply the truth of the gospel has penetrated our heart. When we spin up righteous indignation toward other people, we don't have a friend problem. We don't have a kid problem. We don't have a spouse problem. We have a gospel problem. Amen. In that moment, we seem to be believing an alternative gospel. One that says, Christ loved me, God loved me, God saved me because I'm pretty awesome. Way more awesome than this guy and this guy's problem is that he's not as awesome as me. And if he was just a little bit more awesome, God would save him too because he's so awesome. But he lacks a little bit of awesomeness so I need to give him a little bit of awesomeness. In our critical judgment of other people, we have forgotten how lost in the muck and the mire we were before God stooped down in the person of Jesus Christ and rescued us. Not because we're worthy of it, not because we're good enough, but because He chose to show mercy and grace to us. 
And that does apply to you. If you're in here and you have never heard the gospel before or you don't believe in Christ, then you need to understand that right now you stand before the throne of God as an enemy, not as a friend, but as an enemy. And what he offers to you in the person of Christ is salvation. And what's required is for you to own up to your lack of awesomeness. For you to realize that there's nothing in me worth saving. But then, is Jesus just saying we just overlook everything? Am I never supposed to have conversations with my spouse about when they leave the towel on the bathroom floor? Am I never supposed to have those kind of conversations about the sinful habits that they do? No, that's not what he says. But I want you to notice how Jesus advocates you do this in the example that he gives. So there's the warning up front in verses one and two. You need to understand how big the stakes are, but then on the backside, there's gonna be a command, but you still have to do it. So here's the stakes that you have to remember, but you still are commanded to do it. But look how he advocates. He says in verse three, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So he uses this famous example that we probably all know, we probably thought about a number of times, of the speck that's in someone else's eye and you failing to notice the log that's in your own eye and and, or this person failing to notice the log that's in their own eye and wanting to go after the speck. Of course, this is a reference to, to sin and its consequences. We've got a log of sin in our eye, a speck of sin in our neighbor's eye. And going back to the mirror, then I fail to notice my own sinful habits, my own shortcomings, Because frankly, it's easier to see yours. (laughs) But then do we just walk around with specks and logs in our eyes? Do we just walk around and we're all miserable? You got your speck, I got my log. Mine's probably a little bit more uncomfortable, but it's okay. We're just gonna be miserable together. If you listen to the culture, that's exactly how they want you to interpret verses one and two. But that's not where Jesus goes. He does not say that. So on the one hand, I can align with how the culture understands or, or is interpreting verse 1 that we shouldn't be hypercritical of others. That's what hypocrites do, he says. But what Jesus is advocating for is not silence either, which is what they want. That's not what he's advocating for. He's advocating that first you be critical of your own sins. That first you look into the mirror and then what does he say? You see clearly for what purpose? to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's still an interaction. There's still a time where you're going to take your brother's sin or you're going to help your brother with your sin. But do you understand that the position that the person takes in verse five is not one of judgment. It's not one of criticism. It's one of help. There's a difference. Imagine how our critique of unrighteousness would change If first we would analyze our own heart 
And God, we get to the place where we realize how woefully inadequate we are without Christ. We remind ourselves of the gospel message. We preach it to ourselves. And then we went to our brother and our sister or our sister, perhaps our spouse, maybe our child, and we seek to help them remove the speck. What's our attitude then? It's not one of judgment and criticism. It's one of first aid. You ever have those people where you're hurt and they're like telling you what you should have done? You're like bleeding everywhere and they're telling you what you should have done? I'm not worried right now about what I should be doing. I need a Band-Aid, okay? <laughs> right? The attitude is different when somebody comes along regardless of the mistake that's been made and seeks to render aid. The attitude that they're presenting to you is entirely different. We're seeing two people who are both fallen who are absolute paupers apart from God's grace, and we need each other's help. Others' weaknesses should always be assessed in light of our own. The second warning that Jesus gives to us is of the opposite danger. Look, at, He says, our own self-incrimination shouldn't make us undiscriminating. Our own self-incrimination that we saw in verses 1 to 5 should not make us undiscriminating. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now this verse has always caused a lot of confusion amongst interpreters, amongst people just, just reading the Bible, people of all stripes. It really looks on the surface, it looks quite harsh. I mean, Jesus is being pretty harsh here. And what is he saying? What exactly is Jesus warning us against? It becomes even more challenging when we try to apply this to a real-world scenario. What real-world scenario are we talking about here where I look at somebody and say, that's a dog or a pig, and I don't even need to talk to them. I need to go the opposite direction. Well, he's just warned us that there is an inherent danger in judging others. But now he's going the opposite direction. There's also a danger in showing no judgment whatsoever. There's also a danger in being undiscriminating. You can surely see why this would happen. You're told over and over in Scripture that you've got to love your enemies. Hey, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for them. You're told here in verse 1, don't judge. So perhaps you look at a person's fault, uh, their, their sins and things like that, and you just say, you know what? It's just easier to live and let live. What's the alternative? That I actually go back to my Bible, that I, I preach the gospel to myself, that I start thinking about how big of a sinner I am before I ever turn to them. And that just sounds like a big hassle. And I don't think that that's worth doing, to be honest with you. That's a lot of work. So why don't I just instead adopt a policy of live and let live? You see this going on right now in our culture with many churches around the world where instead of actually preaching the gospel, instead of talking about sin for what it is, we would rather just adopt the, I won't touch your life, you don't touch mine, we'll be okay. But Jesus gives us a word of warning about that too. He, he says here that there are dogs and pigs out there. 
There are people, in other words, that don't believe the gospel. When he says dogs and pigs, we're not talking about Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. We're not talking about golden retriever puppies. These are vile aspects of creation. Both are considered unclean. Both are the kinds of like wild boar, rabid dog, street dog that come and attack you. And what Jesus is saying is that you'd better be discriminating enough to understand what kind of person you're talking to. But what are these pearls to which he refers? What are these pearls that you're casting before the swine? I think it's the same as the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13. It's the message of the kingdom. It's the gospel message. The message of repentance of sin. The message of forgiveness of sin by God through Christ alone. So the answer is yes, there are circumstances where Christ tells us that we're to be discriminating enough to refrain from sharing the gospel. Now that might come as a shock to us who fall under the umbrella of evangelical, which by definition means that we share the good news. Well, when would we not share the gospel? There's lots of debate amongst Christians as to when, and scholars alike, as when not to do this, as what to apply, when to apply what Jesus is actually saying here. But to whom do we apply it? And I think the answer is really pretty simple. We apply it to people that upon hearing the words of correction in the gospel message turn and attack you. There doesn't seem to need to be that much debate on it. It seems to be specific who he's talking about. The people that upon hearing the gospel message will turn and will attack you. And I don't mean that they counter your arguments. I don't mean that they don't believe what you're saying. I don't mean that they simply debate you. I mean that they verbally and physically attack you. Jesus calls these pearls before swine. Now, you might notice how little time and attention is put on this fact. One verse as opposed to the first five that tell us how to deal with brothers and sisters and how to deal with sin. So we should note how sparingly this is to be utilized and how comparatively few people that this would apply to. But the essential premise of Jesus' teaching here in, the, in this verse is that the gospel message is the greatest of all treasures. And though we will expect persecution for the sake of righteousness, it is too priceless of a treasure to be given merely to those who simply just want to mock and ridicule it. Or worse, kill you. On top of that, there are plenty of other people around the world that desire to hear the message of the kingdom. Yes. So we also have to keep in mind that, there, that we're not in a position of determining who does and who doesn't get the message of the gospel. It's not as though I can look at my friend and say, I don't think he'll say yes, so I'm just not going to bring it up. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. We're not prejudging people's willingness to respond. I think Jesus has in mind here people really probably specifically that will turn and kill you and cheapen the message of the gospel and trample it underfoot or potentially even come after you for sharing it. This is not simply people who just reject the truth. I think he's specifically talking about violent people. 
Paul in the book of Acts seems to model this approach quite well. When he goes into the towns and villages, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogues and preaches first. And upon hearing the news, some of the Jews reject it and they become hostile towards him. And what does he do? He turns and he gives it to the Gentiles. He preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus tells the disciples to shake the dust off your feet when you're not received into a town. It's a very hostile act to not receive somebody into a town. So shake the dust off your feet and move on. Give it to somebody else. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Jesus is giving, I think, a similar warning to us here. So we all have people in our families who have resisted the gospel. We all have people in our families who have debated against you. We all have people in our families who may, even when you present the gospel, agree with you initially and say, yeah, 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 that sounds great. That's exactly, yes, I believe that. And then they turn around and they don't live in accordance with that. I don't think that's the group of people that Jesus has in mind here. Then there are others who simply look for a fight to pick with you. They're waiting to ridicule and scorn your testimony. Or worse, as would be the case in some places around the world, seeking to put you to death. Jesus is telling us, I think, that our own self-incrimination, our own judgment of ourselves and the sins of our brothers and sisters, and our caution about judgment shouldn't leave us naive either. I want you to understand that this is difficult, really, to think through. The way we go about judgment and Jesus' own warnings about judgment. And nothing that I preach from the stage is not felt by me personally. That I don't, I'm not also sitting, I'm sitting in the pew right now as well, hearing this message, and it's convicting for me as far as how I judge other people. I have a spouse. I have a wife and kids. And it is difficult for me to to reflect this kind of attitude that Jesus is telling me to live out inside the walls of my own home, with my own family, much less the people that are outside of my own family. I think this passage, though, has so much to say to every church that would seek to emulate the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. It's what we're trying to do here, is emulate the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. First, it should tell us that that in our relationships with each other, there should be a lot of grace. A lot of grace. And when you think you've given enough grace, you should probably give more grace. That we should give each other a long leash. And the pushback might be, but if I just let people walk all over me, if I don't stand up and actually fight them, if I don't say mean things to them to let them know that I was offended, then they'll just keep doing it. Maybe. But that sounds a lot more like the attitude of a dog and a pig than a brother or sister. And as I look around the room, I think what we've got around us are brothers and sisters in Christ who are more likely upon receiving grace to give grace. 
I think they're members of the body of Christ. I think that's how they've responded to the gospel, isn't it? They've received grace from Christ and they've turned and they are trying to give it. And so the likelihood is that in response to your giving them grace, they give it back. Besides all of that, aren't you glad that God shows you radical grace in spite of the fact that you continue to walk all over Him? Second, it should lead us not towards judgment of others, but to help. It should lead us to help our brothers and sisters in their sin. It's easy to spot the mom that has the three kids, it's all by herself, and be critical of the fact that her kids are running around like crazy. And to say, you know, you know what I'd do if they were mine? Take them out behind the woodshed. It's easy to have that spirit. It's easy to be critical. It's much more difficult to analyze your own shortcomings and realize you're not the perfect parent either. You never have been, never will be. And to go over to her and render her aid. It's a similar picture that Jesus is painting here, except it's one of sin. It's easy to nitpick people's faults and sins. It's easy to point them out. You can see them all. They may not be able to see some of them. It's much more difficult in love to have some self-reflection. In repentance, remove the log from your own eye. And to come over to your brother or sister, help them see the speck, and help them remove it from their eye. But that's what it means to be the body of Christ. This is nothing. This is just a bunch of people meeting together in a room on a Sunday morning if we're not really worshiping the Lord and we're not really extending other people grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray, Lord, that as we think about what you have done for us, as we reflect on how impacted by the gospel we are, that you would stir in our hearts a kind of love, a kind of grace, a kind of mercy. for all of our brothers and sisters. I pray that how we believe the gospel would impact everything about the way we live. That our children would see mom and dad at home living out the truths of the gospel. 
that they would see radical forgiveness in a marriage. That they would see a lot of grace given. That they would see people that are quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. That that impact of the gospel be felt in our families. That that would spill over into our church body. Brothers and sisters together would forgive one another if anyone has a complaint against another. And instead choose to build one another up. Pray that we would also learn how to properly remove our own logs and render aid to our brother or sister who's in dire need of help. Pray that you would make us that kind of body where it's not judgment, but first aid. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.